Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'd been on a really bad first date with a girl that I'd had a big crush on. And my friend's sister was like, you need to go on 50 first dates in the next two years, which was, you know, mathematically like a first date every two weeks. Yeah. And she was like, dating is a skill. So even if you're a great person, yeah. if you're not good at dating, uh, you can't show people what a great person you are. And I think that that analogy is basically a lot of what we experience. Like, oh man, I, I know my product. I know I'm the best service person. I know my best friend and I'm so happy for him. And yet I'm unable to communicate that because we're not preparing correctly. And we're, we're stumbling on all of these real and imagined challenges because we didn't think that those challenges were going to be there. And so what I'm really focused on is like, how do you either eliminate those challenges, which I would say is pretty hard, or actually prepare with them in mind? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. 
It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Buzzy, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out by uh, way of your publicist about your work and the fact that you were a Jeopardy champion. And given that I have a little sister who is absolutely obsessed with Jeopardy <laughs> and forces my entire family to watch it every night and, in fact, has her own Jeopardy hat, um, I thought, yeah, this is a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, Beyond that, I want to have this conversation, but that obviously helped quite a bit. Uh, before we get into all that, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Um, you know, I was a part, I, I went to a pretty small school. I ended up um, switching from public to a, a private prep school when I was in eighth grade. And my class size was pretty small. I think we were about 100 people. And in particular, my year was very like, we were all kind of friendly. So um, I was sort of, you know, a classic floater, like I had friends who were, you know, athletes, I mean, almost everyone played a sport, it was, you know, if you, if you weren't playing football or, or basketball or something like that, you know, you were fencing or on the swim team or something like that. So I was definitely more of more of a floater um, between groups. Um, and I really liked, I think that there were probably people at my school who, who felt like they were more, uh, it was harder for them to move in certain circles. And I was sort of an enabler of that movement. Um, the other thing as I was definitely, I went to a very, you know, preppy school where everybody was going to become, you know, bankers, lawyers, doctors, that kind of thing. And I was the arty kid. Um, I was a musician. And uh, my junior or senior year, they like, redid the whole art swing. And like me and two friends who were the only really art, truly arty people at this school, basically had like a college level facility to ourselves. So I definitely like, had a lot of friends who were more musical or visual arts and stuff like that. And I would say that if I had like a core crew is definitely kind of more of the, the arty out there people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> being in part of that group, I, I wonder, you know, did you come from sort of like a, a typical family who would be in, from that environment, especially when you're surrounded by kids who are soon to be bankers, doctors, lawyers, whatever it is, sort of the standard, you know, this is how you live a good life narrative. Uh, what kind of advice did you get from parents, teachers, peers about potential career paths? Yeah, you know, um, I think I think about there's there. I believe it was Borges wrote this essay called "The Argentine Writer in Tradition," and he talks about how these groups that are kind of have access to the canon but aren't in the canon have this very um, powerful point of view. And he talks about Jewish writers, he talks, uh, you know, Jewish writers and artists, Irish writers and artists. And then in his moment, he felt like it was these South American um, writers, and he was writing on the cusp of the South American boom. And I, I felt like I feel like in a lot of ways, I had that experience in a lot of ways, like I said, I went to this really preppy 
you know, very waspy prep school and I was a Jewish kid. All of my friends' parents were, you know, power, powerful people or accomplished professionals. And not that my dad wasn't accomplished, but he owned a clothing store. He owned a, he was a retailer, third generation retailer. Um, and so it wasn't, you know, we used to joke that all my friends would come over my house on tax day because all of their parents would be miserable because of, you know, they were making all this money. And so I was sort of, um, you know, I, I was moving in this world and I could, you know, but I wasn't really totally a part of it. And I think that that gave me the ability to kind of like internalize and observe things without necessarily totally buying into them. And I don't know what any of this has to do with, with what I'm doing now, but I definitely think that that has uh, kind of shaped a lot of who I am. Yeah. When you <laughs> get to be surrounded by money and wealth at that level and, and sort of status and power, uh, what I wonder is how that informed your own perspectives on the role that money and wealth plays uh, in your adult life. Because, you know, I think that as a culture, you know, like wealth is really kind of the holy grail of success, you know, based on what you see in the media, based on what we're in the headlines. I mean, like, you know, my joke is that every self-help book can be put into one of three categories, make more money, you know, improve your relationships or lose some weight. You know, um, I think one of our, our podcast gets said, you know, get paid later made is kind of the, the genre more or less. <laughs> um, yeah. so I wonder, you know, when you have grown up around this environment, uh, how that informs your own perspective on the role of money and wealth. Um, I think I just saw how how much of a just really wealth and money and all of that is just a point of view in a lot of ways. I think that um, of, it's easy to say that when you have money, right? Like yeah. my grandma used to have a saying, like, rich or poor, it's good to have money, um, which I think is very true. And I think like, I don't want to come off as too privileged, but I think there were a lot of people who who I think we've seen it in our society, right? Like, you know, the, the Bernie Madoffs where, you know, it's like the emperor has no clothes. Um, and I think that there's a difference between, you know, people who create a life for themselves and people who kind of amass the trappings of wealth. And I, I've really focused on like, you know, in my personal life, what kind of life I want to have. Um, and, and probably have turned down opportunities um, that would have made me a lot of money because it wasn't really, um, for me, it was more about what kind of life I want to have as opposed to how much money I want to have. Yeah. Um, money allows you to have a certain amount of life, but, um, it, it also like sometimes those opportunities don't support that life in another way. When I was really, um, when I was just out of school, I used to do a lot of Buddhist meditation when I was like um, high school and college and, and after college. And right when I graduated college, I went on a Buddhist meditation retreat and I um, asked the teacher, I was like right out of school. I didn't have a job yet. And I was like trying to figure out what to do. Um, and I asked the teacher like just for advice. And he said something that I still think about. And when people ask me for career advice, this is usually the first thing I say, which is that um, security is easy to find, but freedom is hard to find. Mm. And, and I try to make my choices, um, around that. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways for a lot of people and with good reason, money is security and you can, yeah. you know, for a lot of people, you can find the money. There's ways to make money. There's ways to, um, 
make more money. There's way, you know, let's say legally and illegally, there are ways to, you know, hoard capital and whatever, at whatever level feels like it gives you security. But freedom, real freedom is, is, is actually quite rare. And I think that people often run to security and, and we, and we kind of sacrifice our freedom. Um, our personal freedom, whatever that means, whatever level of freedom we're giving up. And so that's kind of my North Star in terms of the wealth conversation. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny to hear you talk about freedom. You know, we had uh, Scott Galloway here, who's a you know professor at NYU, has you know become somewhat wealthy. And he was telling me, he said, you know, like he knew two sets of people. I think he, he like, you know, um, a couple who lived somewhere in the South who basically um, aren't spending all of their money and, you know, they make $50,000 a year, but they've got plenty in savings. Whereas he said, you know, he knew a friend who was an investment banker who after three divorces and, uh, you know, kids in private school, he spends everything that he makes. And he said, believe it or not, those other people are actually better off because they're actually free. And right. I, I think that we kind of equate wealth with freedom, not realizing that, wait a minute, sometimes your, you know, wealth comes at the cost of your freedom. Because I think that it's easy for us to see on the surface, you know, what the lives of these people look like as they're portrayed through media. So, you know, we've had Justine Musk, Elon Musk's ex-wife here. And, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the things that she said to me, she said, I don't think people truly understand the amount of work that goes into these accomplishments. They often come at the cost of everything in your life. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think that, um, you know, I remember, yeah, totally. You know, you, you see these people driving, driving cars or living in houses and it's like, you, you've got to feed that beast every month. You got to mm-hmm. feed that every month. And so, yeah, I think, you know, like you said, that, 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 um, that becomes, you know, a, a, a real, can become like a real shackle yeah. for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. and often it kind of blows up and that's when people have a reckoning and I'm, you know, knock on wood, I'm lucky that I very early on was able to learn that, um, you know, that wasn't necessarily the, the approach to take. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's one thing I've always wondered. And, and part of me wonders if maybe we're not of an age to really contemplate such a deep question, but why don't we talk, uh, you know, when we're younger in school about not, you know, I think we substitute accomplishment for meaning, thinking that meaning is what we'll find through accomplishment, but we don't ever really talk about, you know, what kind of life do you want to live? Um, you know, what do you really want? And maybe it's because you don't like, I also think it's interesting that, you know, you're making, we make high school kids decide what they want to do with the rest of their lives when they have such limited data points. Um, but you know, having been in the school that you were in and and the environment that you're in, why do you think that is like, why don't you think that we have these conversations earlier on in education and it takes, you know, the midlife crisis for somebody to have the wake up call or the reckoning that you were talking about? Um, well, I think my guess, and I really don't know that much, um, definitely speaking out of my depth here, but I'll just say that I think everything here, everything in our society is basically in one way or another, like uh, a business, right? And so if you're a school, your job, if you're a high school, your job is to, you know, get kids into college or get them into, you know, jobs or whatever. And likewise, if you're a college, you know, the what you're trading is, you know, a a big investment, but the idea is that you'll, there'll be a return on that investment. So all of that stuff is, is getting people focused to very, you know, 
um, the kinds of uh, accomplishments, to use your word, and the kinds of um, achievement that is measurable, right? So, you know, a university can say our our graduates, you know, make this much money, you know, average this much money 10 years out of school. Um, and a high school can say we get this percentage of our students into college or we graduate this many of our, you know, freshmen, you know, we have this graduation rate. Um, things like things like fulfillment and things like, um, you know, meaning are are harder to um, quantize and thus harder to manage um, <laughs> if you look at it as like a management problem, right? So if you're like a principal and you're trying to show that your school is doing a good job, it's harder to say, yeah, we these kids are really like, caring about their world and who they are and who they want to be. It's easier to say like, we got test scores up and fewer kids are dropping out. And so you focus on that kind of stuff because, you know, you can sell that to your quote unquote investors, whether that's um, people who you want to come into your school alums, who you're trying to get to reinvest, or if you're a public um, organization, you know, getting the funding that you need from, um, you know, the public. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Running a business is hard. But your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
Mm-hmm. So that would be my guess. Yeah. Maybe it's uh, cynical. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk <laughs> about how in the world do you go from being a music major at Columbia to becoming a, a Jeopardy champion? And one thing I always wonder about people on Jeopardy is like, how, how is it that you become so well read? I mean, my sister shockingly knows insane amounts of answers. And I think her dream is to actually go on Jeopardy. But then uh, she just texted me her questions she wanted me to ask you. But uh, okay. That we, which we'll get to, but, but how in the, what led you down this path and, and what is actually involved in the preparation for this? Like, are you just reading hundreds of books? Like, how do you catalog this amount of knowledge? Yeah. So, um, I grew up and I always had like a very good memory. Um, but I also really liked, um, when I started reading, I liked going for things like biographies and stuff like that. So I, I had an interest in, um, facts and when i was old and i and i on road trips my um parents used to give me these like trivia cards which i think they still make and it's like you know you flip through them and and uh i was always really into that and i um started watching jeopardy when i was probably like in middle school high school I was on at seven o'clock where i grew up and i would watch it and then the simpsons rerun at seven thirty. um on on the other channel and it was just like part of my day and 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 I really really loved it and then in high school I found out that there was this thing called quiz bowl and I started doing that and I was doing it but in my sort of like irreverent way so I you know people there are people who are very serious quiz bowlers and I've met some of them and they scare the crap out of me but I was sort of like I was sort of like hey this is like another way for me to goof off and have fun and I, you know, I did okay. I wasn't great, but I was pretty good at it. When I got to college, you know, the quiz bowl scene was very serious. So I, I kind of ducked out of it. Um, but I always liked Jeopardy and I just, I don't know, you know, Ken Jennings probably has the best, um, statement on this. And I I quote him in in the audio book that I just came out with, which is, you know, people who are good at Jeopardy are interested in everything. Um, because it's easy to remember things that you're interested in. Um, and so, you know, I, I have like 12 Wikipedia tabs up at all times, you know, and I'm like in those wormhole. When Wikipedia came out, I was in college, man, I just, I lost like days of my life, like reading about everything, <laughs> everything. I mean, and it's funny because this started when I was a kid, I was, I never slept as a kid. Like my yeah. mom bemoans that like, and, and my grandfather had gotten me the world book encyclopedia and my mom would wake up, come to get me up for school in the morning, and there would be a stack of encyclopedias next to next to the bed. And it was because I was basically doing what we all do now, which is like clicking through the links on Wikipedia. So I'd be reading one article, and I'd be like, oh, what's this other thing? And I have to go get another encyclopedia and start flipping through it. Yeah. Um, so now it's a lot easier to do that. But I used to have... So I've always kind of just been curious yeah. about stuff. Um, in preparing for Jeopardy, though... Um, there's kind of like, a um, there is a method that is kind of the received wisdom. And then I found that to be insufficient when I, after I had been on and knew that I was going to be invited back. So mm-hmm. this, this book kind of came out of what I learned from trying to make a better preparation process for Jeopardy and then applying that to other things. And then I started yeah. talking to people that are smart about it. So the way most people prepare for Jeopardy is they watch the show a lot and they have a ballpoint pen and they practice buzzing in and answering and all that stuff. Um, The reason for that is that 
Jeopardy has a really particular way that it asks questions, right? So uh, oftentimes a clue will be phrased in a certain way, or there'll be a couple of clues within each clue. Um, and so you get used to the way that Jeopardy asks stuff and also the kind of material that Jeopardy likes to ask about, um, which is not necessarily uh, the same material that you'll hear at a pub quiz or in Quiz Bowl or any of these other sort of trivia uh, formats. It's It's got like kind of its own um, genre of of questions or, or material. So you get used to that stuff uh, and you get used to the way Alex reads, which is an important part of the timing aspect. Um, what I found wanting in that method is that, uh, sh- sure, it gives you a lot of um, help for the content, but what it fails to take into account is the context. And the context of being on Jeopardy is completely different than the context of watching Jeopardy. So yeah. watching Jeopardy is something you do um, depending on your market, at the end of the day, sitting on your couch, you know, maybe relaxed after dinner, right before dinner, whatever it is, um, and you watch one show and then you go and move on with your life. Taping Jeopardy happens. You have to be at the studio at 7.30 in the morning, dressed, uh, ready to go, and you tape five shows in a day, assuming that you do well. And they're back-to-back. So you tape three shows in the morning starting after all the briefings and the makeup and everything, you tape three shows before lunch and then two shows in the afternoon. That's an entirely different situation. You're also standing up, you're under lights. There's two other people right next to you. You know, it's not like you're, I always joke, like it's easy to get all the answers right when you're playing against the dog. It's a lot harder to get the answers right when there are two people up there who are really smart. And so and and you're stressed. You're way more stressed. Um, your brain chemistry is different, all that stuff. And so what I did was I said, how can I replicate as much as possible that experience of actually being on the show? Mm-hmm. And that kind of led me down this path of like, what else are we kind of preparing poorly for or not preparing at all for? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how I got here. <laughs> wow. Uh, all right. So I'll get to my sister's weird ass questions in a second. But yeah. um, I, I want to talk about this idea of curiosity. And, you know, you mentioned that people who are good at Jeopardy are interested in everything. And, you know, I make every single guest choice here on Unmistakable Creative based on curiosity. That is literally the number one filter by which I choose. Like, that's the first question I ask myself when I see a pitch come in. It's like, am I curious about this? But one thing I, I've also seen is that people tend to become a lot more narrow minded as they become adults about subjects that they're willing to explore, um, you know, curiosities that they're willing to indulge in. And I, I wonder, you know, one, why you think that isn't, and two, more importantly, how they start to get back that sense of curiosity that they, you know, everybody seems to have as a child. I think, well, I think I'm probably a little bit an exception to that because since I, since my kind of Jeopardy experience, I've taken on, like, I decided to enter a, a weightlifting, a national powerlifting competition. Mm-hmm. and then after I actually won my weight class and deadlift, um, I decided to take on tap dancing, which I have no dance experience. And so I guess the question could be, why am I willing to do that stuff when so few other people are? I think part of it is, um, like we, and it's kind of back to that, like security freedom question, right? Like we tend to like, 
the familiar or things where we feel like we know what we're talking about. Like it's very, very uncomfortable to feel um, like a novice. Um, and one of the people that I interview for this book is a glassblower named Alexander Rosenberg, who was on that TV show Blown Away. And he teaches glass blowing, And he said that one of the things that he does is he like learns something new, totally as a beginner every two years, partially to help him as a teacher to remind him what it feels like to absolutely have no idea how to do something and how challenging that can be. I think, you know, the older we get, the more we want to avoid that. And I think also as more of our lives are our performances for our peers and for the world. We, um, we <laughs> want to do things that we are really good at. We want to, um, we, you know, we don't want to fail or fail publicly or be embarrassed. And I think that, um, you know, curiosity can sometimes be a road to some failure and embarrassment. Um, mm -hmm. and that, uh, it's a very understandable and natural inclination to want to avoid that. Yeah. Um, but I think we do ourselves a disservice, you know? Yeah. Let's <laughs> go deeper into these two concepts of both memory and preparation. Um, you know, it's funny because yeah, I've done a lot of, of sort of research on memory lately. I mean, as you know, as, as I was telling you before here, I tend to read, you know, tons of books, not just the people I interview, but books that I'm personally interested in. Um, and I've always found that I have an uncanny memory for absolutely useless information that will never serve me any practical purpose. Like one of my roommates jokes that I know his own memories better than he knows of them. Like yeah. he'll tell me something and then I'll say, no, that's not actually what happened. He's like, that's my memory. And you actually have the accurate version. <laughs> Why is that? Um, so I want to talk about like, you know, one, how do you do that? But the, uh, what I, I think is, is even more interesting is this whole idea of preparation, you seem to have developed a framework for pr preparation that doesn't just apply to Jeopardy, that we could apply to other things. And I'm going to, you know, ask you to frame it in the most ridiculous practical example for me personally. So, okay. you know, my roommates and I play uh, NBA 2K20 every day religiously, which is ridiculous because I don't even watch sports and I could care less what's going on in the actual NBA and right now nothing. Uh, but he's had this reign of terror that has continued ever since we've lived in this apartment or in the house that we live in. Um, so if we were to apply my preparation framework so I can finally start kicking his ass again, uh, how would you guide me through that? Which I realize okay. is an absolutely ridiculous example, but yeah, I figured but, since I have you here, I might as well, you know. Yeah, sure. Why not? All right. Um, so as I said, the first thing I would think about is like the context, like what times of day that you guys tend to play NBA 2K20. Mm -hmm. Think about like how is that your most alert time? Definitely not. Uh, yeah, definitely not. So the so then what I would start to do is there, there's a method that I've used, which is like kind of dragging your alertness into that time of day. So for instance, if there's something that you tend to do at a, like an alert time of day. So for I'll give you my example. Um, I used to do crosswords every morning when and then I started having to do these. Um, when James Holtower was on Jeopardy, I was asked to do all these interviews. Um, and they were always at like 11 o'clock on CNN, right? Because it was like after all the real news happened, they wanted to talk about this crazy thing happening on Jeopardy. And I was really tired. So for like the during the time that he was on the show, I started doing my um, crossword puzzles at like 10 or 11 at night to bring my like alertness to that time of day. So what I would start doing is 
first of all, find uh, like whether it's reading or doing what checking your email, if there's something that you tend to do when you're alert, start Mm -hmm. trying to do some of that at the time when you are normally going to play NBA 2K20. That's the first thing. The other thing is I would do is start to um, break down um, different aspects of what the game uh, NBA 2K20 is asking you to do. So if there are certain things that you aren't good at, if there are ways to like, essentially drills, what are the drills? Because what you're doing is you're just scrimmaging, right? Every night and you're just getting beat and you're not actually building individual skills. You're just kind of like trying to do everything all at once. So if there are ways for you to find a way to drill and it might be drilling built into the game. (laughs) There you go. There you go. So spend some time drilling. I think people like people tend to overemphasize one or the other. Like um, they tend to drill a lot and not scrimmage. And then when they're in like a real world game situation, they don't, Uh um, they can't put it together or they scrimmage a lot and they're not drilling. So they're not actually like building, they're not doing any skill building. They're just kind of like going through it. Um, those are kind of, uh, that's a, a balancing act to figure out. And, um, I mean, <laughs> I'm just trying to think, I, cause I, I'm not a big video gamer. So I'm trying to think right, about right. like video game stuff, but I think I would start, I mean, that's like a great place to start. And I would also try to figure out like, I would maybe get on YouTube and, yeah, and watch, watch like, great, you know, if there are people, I know people post their or Twitch or whatever, like, there yeah. are people who are really good. What are they doing? You know, what are mm-hmm. they doing that's different than what we're doing, you're doing, yeah. or whatever? Um, I did I did a lot of that. Like, I think, you know, if you look at like think of yourself as an athlete, think of yourself as an elite athlete. I thought of myself when I was getting ready for the Jeopardy tournament of champions, like I was an Olympic athlete. Yeah. And I approached my preparation like that. And I think, why not? Like, why not think like I am training for the Olympics of NBA 2K20? And, you know, you go to the locker room and you watch the tape, you know, you watch the tape, you say, oh, oh, that was interesting. Like, how do I do that? And then you kind of try to figure that out and and really be systematic about it. The other thing I would think about is ritual, Uh you know, when you're doing the practice stuff, when you're playing it, like what, how can you build rituals that allow you to reset when something bad happens or just like get, make something become like muscle memory? pictures uh, do this all the time right we see i mean i'm not a sports guy either really but like the whole the way that pitchers like set up um in baseball it like it uh, it's a big kind of like anxiety management and stress management thing but it also allows everything that comes after it to be kind of automatic golf is another thing where like the way that the golfer sets up in front of the ball or a tennis player, the number of times they bounce the ball before they serve, it's all kind of like queuing up automatic behaviors, right? So as opposed to being in the middle of an NBA 2K20 play and trying to like figure it out, you're like, okay, like I'm going to do my like deep breath in, tap my foot, deep breath out and inbound the ball. And like everything that happens after that is automatic. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because <laughs> like the, the games where my roommate has big leads and I end up beating him are the ones where he starts to lose his composure. Like that is his downfall. He's much better than I right. am right now, but that I know for sure is his downfall is that I can keep my composure even with like an 18 point, you know, deficit and come back from it because I've done right. it. Whereas, you know, 
when he he just starts getting irate, it's kind of hilarious. Right. Like both of us have our yeah. So I mean, what are the ways to needle him too? Like how can you like in small ways? <laughs> even you know, I mean, I th- yeah. Wh- why not? Like it's it's a game, right? So yeah. play the game. I mean, you know, th- what do they say? Play the play the player, not the ball. So play or, the player. What yeah, is, and shit what talking is like what can you pretty common yeah. on an NBA floor, from what I hear. Yeah, totally. So it's like if even if he's up by a huge lead, if you do some like goofy move and it just makes him look like a fool I mean, rub it in his face i don't know i'm like i'm you know i'm 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 definitely I, you know part of me is like are there any cheat codes you yeah. know like i'm just like what you know i'm here i'm here to like if winning is what it's about you know figure it out yeah. <laughs> like what does it take um i don't know like you know put a little honey on his like controller one night and see if <laughs> you know like uh, I, I mean, you you want to win outright, right? We yeah. all want to win outright. So I'm I'm kind of I'm joking, but I'm also right, like you right. know like think think beyond just what's happening in the game as well. Yeah. Like what's happening with him? What's happening with you? I think you know that's kind of part of what what goes on in in the context stuff. I think part of my success was just like I I being a musician. I think really helped me learn how to like keep my composure on stage, how to work through making mistakes um in a performance situation and so like i could kind of like i was very kind of nonchalant or apparently nonchalant in a situation that was extremely stressful for other people Mm -hmm. and and in a way my nonchalance made them more stressed because it made it made it it kind of heightened their own self-consciousness about how stressed they were yeah wow um, well, so for the sake of my sister, I have to ask you her question. Yeah. Jeopardy, and then we'll, we'll go on to a more practical example because I don't think everybody yeah. listening so, so, shit about it. So, so with my MBA, do you think my MBA 2K tips will help? I'll, 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 you know what? Let me report back to you because we literally, yeah. we play a tournament every week where we pick three teams and, you know, he's basically held the, the championship, you know, for five straight tournaments and I'm really annoyed and I, you know, my other roommate doesn't give a shit anymore. He's like, you guys are idiots, but, um, yeah, but anyway. It's, it's just i figured given your background i was like this is the yeah why not i go to i mean i mean i'm like i'm a nut for this stuff so i'm excited to hear um what works and what doesn't so my sister wanted to know how you decided what anecdotes you would share after the first commercial break and then she said some people straight say the strangest things and i always wonder what's the one thing you would choose to share about yourself on national tv yeah so the way it works is they they once they once you get cast uh, to be on the show, they send you a pretty long questionnaire and it starts out with like, what are five interesting things about you, which, um, you know, is supposed to be, that's basically what the prompt for the whole thing is, but people aren't very good at self-assessing. So they start asking other questions like, how did you meet your spouse or what was the time you met a celebrity or, um, you know, was there something that happened with, your friends and college, you know, they have all these prompts basically to, to try to essentially get to what are the five actually interesting stories about you. Um, and the contestant team basically takes these 10 some odd pages and then puts it into a, uh, a flash card that they hand Alex Trebek. When you're in the green room, they go through and they kind of say of these, are these five things okay for us to talk about? So they kind of double check make sure that you're comfortable with it. Yeah. And then they say, I think that, you know, the contestant team says, I think this is the most interesting one of these five. So I'll highlight it, but you should know that he, he Alex Trebek decides what he's going to talk about. So during that commercial break, 
he's looking through the cards and he'll see what they they kind of highlighted, but he he decides on the fly. So a lot of times you'll kind of see people be a, a little surprised with what he asks. Um, and that's because they thought he was going to ask something and he saw something else that caught his eye. So it's really like you kind of provide all this biographical detail and then Alex Trebek decides what he thinks is going to be interesting or what he wants to know about. Mm. Wow. Um, what's funny is like I was on my initial time on the show, I, I was on 10 shows and um, so they ran out of information. So um, one of the things that is also an important thing to remember about the context of Jeopardy is that in addition to having to, you know, win a very competitive game under lights standing up, you then have about 10 minutes to go backstage, change outfits for the next quote unquote day. So you're not wearing the same clothes two days in a row. Um, so for like a little bit of TV magic. And then eventually, after I won a couple days, while I was changing and while I was being told to change faster because they, you know, they've got a schedule to keep. They were also trying to get more anecdotes and stories out of me while I was changing to add to these cards because they had five. And after, you know, a couple of days, they want to make sure he's got enough to choose from. They don't want to just tell him to ask about something. So um, I I imagine if you're, uh, you know, when you were Ken Jennings or uh, James Holtower or whatever, that is even harder to do when you're winning 40, 70 games. Yeah. So let, let's take the preparation framework and apply it to something a bit more useful than NBA 2K. Sure. Um, yeah. you know, I think a creative skill of some sort. You know, we were earlier talking about the fact that part of what uh, prevents people's curiosity is they're afraid of being bad at something. And I, I think that that's pretty common. But let, let's actually you being a musician. You know, one thing I, I realized yeah. that I'd always wanted to learn how to play the guitar, which is a far more versatile instrument than a tuba. And yet my frustration with the whole experience was that, you know, like I was an all state, you know, tuba player. I was really good. And I hate the fact that I'm not able to learn this as quickly as I was, you know, the tuba. Like I went from being, you know, in seventh grade, really average to, you know, missing all state by one chair as a freshman in Texas. And then, you know, but now when I pick up a guitar, I'm like, God, this is slow and, and, you know, annoying. So let's say we were to take this preparation framework to something like that. How would we do it? Yeah. Well, what I would say is, um, there is really, really good centuries of pedagogy for things like music, um, sports. And um, I'm not necessarily an expert in those pedagogies. But what I think is interesting is kind of finding ways to translate those pedagogies to the sort of everyday things. And that's kind of where my focus is. So if you read a lot of these um, performance books by folks that we talked about, like Anders Ericsson, they love, you know, athletes, violinists, all this stuff, because there's, you know, centuries and centuries of people figuring out the best way to learn this stuff. There's competing methods. And for guitar, likewise, there's all that stuff. What I'm really focused on is, you know, you've got to give a speech at your friend's wedding. um, And you want to give a good speech. How do you prepare for that? There isn't centuries of pedagogy for preparation of that. There isn't the, you know, the way that there's a you know ten different guitar primers and um, tutorials on YouTube, um, or you want to give a presentation for work, or you're trying to raise money for your company, or make a sale, or whatever it is, there isn't that same um, uh, history of of method and process. And so, really, what I'm focused on, not to like not answer your question, 
But oh, yeah. what I'm focused on is how do we, in these kind of everyday experiences, be better prepared so that we can actually do our best. I think um, most people are, even if things go, or let's say if things don't go well, it's not because they didn't have the ability to do it well, it was that they didn't have the ability to show what they can do. Um, when I was single in New York City, my friend's sister, um, I, I, I'd been on a really bad first date um, with a girl that I'd had a big crush on. And my, my friend's sister was like, you need to do, you need to go on 50 first dates in the next two years, um, which was, you know, mathematically like a date, a, a first date every two weeks. Yeah. And she was like, dating is a skill. Um, so <laughs> even if you're a great person, yeah. if you're not good at dating, uh, you can't show people what a great person you are. And I think that that analogy is basically a lot of what we experience. Like, oh man, I, I know my product. I know I'm the best service person. I know my best friend and I'm so happy for him. And yet I'm unable to communicate that because I'm not really, pre- we're not preparing correctly. And we're, we're getting, um, we're stumbling on all of these um, real and imagined challenges um, because we didn't think that those challenges were going to be there. Um, and so what I'm really focused on is like, how do you either eliminate those challenges, which I would say is pretty hard or actually prepare with them in mind? Um, you know, I tell people there are potholes on the road. Um, you can either, you know, try to fill all those potholes or just make sure that your car has, has really good shock absorbers. And my preparation, approach is really about how do you build those shock absorbers in into yourself um so i didn't really answer your question so no, I no worries, for that, no, that, that's <laughs> well i think that that's that's uh really useful more so than, than necessarily answering my question you know <laughs> it, the the thing that i've always sort of baffled by is these sort of learning frameworks and how each one of them are you know relevant to different people because i mean even when i look at organizational systems you know like when i think about how to organize projects and, and, you know, action items and productivity, it's like, oh, you can try, you know, the bullet journal and you can try, you know, this method or this app. And, and it's like each one, I think, tailors to certain aspects of a person's personality. And I think that that's one thing I appreciate about having so many different learning frameworks is that I can draw different things from each one. Like as ridiculous as it sounds to me, the most valuable thing that came out of this is the potential to kick my roommate's ass at this game again. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I really, um, try to emphasize is that there isn't, I, I'm very skeptical of the, this is the way, uh, school of, of, you know, personal development, because I think everyone's different and every challenge is different. Things that have worked for me on Jeopardy have not worked for me as well in other situations and things that work for me are not necessarily going to work for you. And so really what I'm trying to, um, encourage people to do is is really experiment with and think about like okay i need to get ready for this what what could my preparation look like uh beyond you know what i've been what i was told essentially what we're told like in high school and college to prepare for like a presentation is what we continue to do for the rest of our lives even though we get smarter and we learn all this other stuff and so i gave myself a lot of license to be kind of goofy and and like not all the stuff worked but some of it did you know one of the things that really helped me get ready for jeopardy was i would bring 
my flashcards and my study materials to the gym. And I would have the trainer quiz me while I was doing very strenuous exercises. Because I was trying to recreate that stressed feeling of being on the show and your mind going totally blank. And the best like way I could figure out how to do that was like hanging from a chin-up bar for 60 seconds. Um, and I don't know if you're, I don't know how athletic you are, but I'm not a very athletic person. And when I tried to do that stuff, I cannot, I couldn't, I don't know if I could spell my name in that situation. And so it was like, how do I, how do I access the memory, the, the kind of like trivia part of my brain when I know that information through that kind of like cortisol surge? Um, that's a silly, that's kind of a silly way to prepare for Jeopardy, but it really, really helped me. And so I'm like kind of inviting people, like what are some other weird, silly things that might actually like really, really, really help you? You know, one of the things I emphasize for people to do when they have sort of a real performance situation, a public speaking or whatever, is film themselves. Because the second you hit record, on your phone or whatever, that that kind of self-consciousness flips on. Even if it's, you know, there's no audience other than the phone, we kind of like all of a sudden, for whatever reason, get really self-conscious. So it's like, what if you did that, but then added another goofy thing, like, you know, you're, you know, in your underwear and you turn on the phone and you're recording yourself. Like, how else can we, how can we make you as like self-conscious as possible if that's something that you're really challenged by? Like you know, it's sort of, it's sort of, um, it's, it's like the, the, like a live virus vaccine, you know, it's like by, by can, um, exposing yourself to that self-consciousness, you're, you're essentially taking away some of its ability to, um, to affect your performance because, it's not that you're not going to be self-conscious on that day, but it's like you kind of know, you've already figured out how to deal with it. It's familiar. I think part of what is so challenging about when the, those stressful situations is not this, not that there's, there's stress because a lot of those stress hormones actually, you know, should improve your performance. It's that we're so unfamiliar with that feeling, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, if you think about it, like things like, cortisol or whatever i'm not i'm not like a neuroscientist but all that stuff should like increase your focus um you know help you whatever you know it's like probably like increases oxygen in your blood and all i have no idea i'm talking out of my ass but you get the idea all that stuff should make you perform better but it doesn't and i think part of it is like you know it's so such an unfamiliar feeling because most of our lives we're not stressed we're not so it's like how can you create these these preparation situations that 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 give you the experience of having to perform in that internal state so that when you are there on the big day you're like okay yep i'm stressed i'm feeling that but i also know how to do it with that going on mm-hmm. wow does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. This, are you buying it? Are you buying it? Or yeah, no, I, like I said, I'm going to be <laughs> I'm kind of tired of losing at this video game. So, um, <laughs> inconsistency is pissing me off. So now that you've given me a, I would, you know what else you could do? Yeah. Um, have a uniform, Okay. have a uniform that, that you wear when you play and that you practice in and, and wear it like wear it a lot. So it's like, <laughs> I, one of the things like, you know, I noticed was when I went on Jeopardy, 
um, they ask you to kind of dress like business casual or whatever, but I was wearing a suit and tie and how many people like don't dress up. And then when they dress up, they're really uncomfortable and how being comfortable and dressed up kind of gave me an advantage. I, I started wearing a suit and tie every day and I still do. Yeah. Um, because a, it helped me shift my mindset and also it just made it so like the perform one obstacle of the performance day was gone. Yeah. I think like if you decided you were going to like take like a Pat Riley approach and like show up for your tournament, like in a suit and tie with your hair slicked back and you could wear it comfortably, <laughs> um, it would probably, it would at least distract your, uh, your roommate, if not intimidate. That's hilarious. A little well, bit. It's funny because I was, I was reading, <laughs> um, it's funny. He just walked down here to go put some laundry in. So he's going to actually hear this. I was reading, uh, uh, Stephen Kotler's book, the rise of Superman. And <clears throat> I don't know if you've, if you've heard, there's a, a professional skateboarder named Danny way. And he has mm-hmm. basically done the craziest shit imaginable. Like he jumped the great wall of China on a skateboard. And when they built wow. the mega ramp, they called him and they, they had mismeasured the entire time the project they were working on it. They're like, Hey man, uh, this thing is going to be like 10 feet longer or bigger than we thought is that too gnarly and he replies and says nothing is too gnarly yeah <laughs> so i was like okay i need to get a t-shirt with that but maybe that'll be my nba 2k20 t-shirt yes exactly exactly i love it so yeah cool well this has been fascinating and hilarious and insightful uh so i have one final question <laughs> for you uh which sure. is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable i think i have kind of like two answers which are two sides of the same coin I think kind of alluding back to where we started, I think um, freedom. It was on that same retreat and we were in Brazil and like this shaman that we visited that like, you know, people don't, they don't want to witness beauty. They want to experience freedom and that like great art, whether it's like dance or music or visual art is basically about encountering freedom. I think that an unmistakable creative really, um, embodies that. And I think that the other side of that is that, um, is that they're really themselves. And I think that, um, freedom is, is basically the expression of being wholly yourself and to like circle back to kind of what I'm about these days. Like when you're really prepared, you can be your, you can be more yourself than when you're not, when you're not prepared, you're self-conscious, you're worried, you're, you try to mimic what you think a good performance looks like. If you really are ready to go, you can just be yourself. You can be the most yourself you could ever be. And I think that that is, that is more compelling and more powerful and more transformative than, than almost anything else. Wow. Uh, amazing. Well, First off, uh, <laughs> thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. Uh, where can yeah. people find out more about you, uh, your work, the new book, and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, um, the best thing to do is check out the book. It's called Get Ready. It's on Audible. It's an Audible original. And uh, that's that's the best thing you can do to find out more about this. Or you can see all the dumb stuff I post on Twitter. That's the only other. That's the other place <laughs> to find out about me. and for everybody listening we will wrap the show with that thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast while you were listening were there any moments you found fascinating inspiring instructive maybe even heartwarming can you think of anyone a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment 
If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.